All right, open with me in your Bibles. Matthew's Gospel. It's going to be our um, last sermon for the next couple weeks. Continuing at the end of Matthew, we're going to have two traditional Christmas sermons, messages, the next two Sundays. But you'll see um, that this passage actually ties in a little bit. I want to make a couple points about it, how it relates to Christmas and Matthew uh, 23, 23. how it relates to Christmas in more ways than you would think. We'll pick it up again um, after Christmas season because there's no way I could deal with all these verses in one sermon. And believe me, you're all saying, thank you, Pastor. Uh, We would be here for quite a while trying to um, deal with all these heavy verses in one shot. So we're going to do it at least in two shots. This will be the first one this morning. So that's Matthew 23. We already went through verses 1 to 12. So we pick it up in verse 13, where Jesus turns from addressing the crowds and his disciples to now directly addressing the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And as we're going to see, it is not a pretty picture. Let's stand together for the reading of God's powerful, authoritative word. Hear the word of the Lord to you. This morning. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor nor will you let those who enter enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell as you are. Woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you. Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Jump down with me. To verse 37 following. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes 
in the name of the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for your spirit to be upon us in a powerful way this morning. Settle us down. Give us understanding. Give us open hearts to receive hard words. We pray, Lord, that your word would literally break our hearts to pieces. That you, Jesus, might remake them again in your image. Humble, poor in spirit, reliant on you, willing to do what you say by faith. We need you, Jesus, because without you, we are completely lost. So we ask as your people, Lord, that you would humble us, that you would just work in our hearts and lives what's pleasing in your sight through your word. Lord, speak now for your servants are listening. Enable me to proclaim your word as I ought. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the word of God does not need to be pasteurized. doesn't need to be, what is it, homogenized. And I'll tell you one thing, it definitely doesn't need, it doesn't need to be sterilized. But unfortunately, that's what people try to do when they wrap Jesus up and his good news into a neat, cute little package of sentimental platitudes. Folks seem to be especially in danger of doing this during the Advent season. They like the idea of the prophesied king of the Jews being born to a humble poor couple, right? Placed in a humble manger as his bed. They enjoy the sacred scene of the Magi coming from the east to worship the two-year-old child, the Christ King. Why do I bring that up? Because what they have to remember, what you and I have to remember, is that this same child who was born to the humble Jewish carpenter and his virgin wife, this same child who didn't even have a bed so he had to be placed in a lowly manger, a feeding trough for, for animals, that same child grew up to say the words we just heard this morning. That's the real Jesus. Isn't it? We need to keep this in mind as we read what can arguably be called, and I would say they are, the strongest language King Jesus ever uttered and was put on record. Now, why? You have to ask yourself this. At least I wrestled with it and struggled with it, and then ended up that it wrestled with me and struggled with me a lot more. But why would the meekest? Why would the gentlest, why would the kindest, most loving, most patient, most holy king who came to lay down his life for his people and die for their sins, why would he use such strong language? Why would he say such scathing things? Well, Remember I said the word of God doesn't need to be pasteurized? It doesn't need to be homogenized. It doesn't need to be sterilized. Well, it does need to be contextualized. 
You know, like, like the media today would have, would have had a ball with Jesus' words because they would just take little bites, right? One statement would say, the Lord says this. And then they would go in whatever direction they felt like going with that one statement. Well, we know that a text without a context is a pretext. And so here we have to see the context, and we know what the context is. Those of us especially who have been with us for a while, who have been studying through the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen that that Matthew has presented to us Jesus the Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. We see that um, the announcement of his birth, that he would save his people from his sins. We see him born of a virgin. We see him do incredible, miraculous things. He's healing the lame. He's giving sight to the blind, right? He's caring for the poor. He's preaching the good news to the poor. He's delivering those who are dominated by the devil from demons. And he's teaching such wonderful things that the people are all amazed at the gracious words that are coming out of his mouth. But we've seen something else throughout this whole gospel. We've seen the religious leaders the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, dogging him every step of the way. The more he reveals his loving heart, the more he gives of himself, the more he shows who he really is, the more they hate him and the more they plot to kill him. Not only do they try to find some blemish in him so they can exploit him and hang him on the gallows, as it were. And even they do come up empty, but they try to stop others and prevent others from coming to him to find the life that only he can give. Now listen, these were the religious leaders of the people. These were supposed to be the spiritual guides. They of all people should have recognized Messiah when he came. What they should have done, they should have been the first in line to fall at his feet, to learn of him, and then to go and tell the people, we found the Messiah, come. Don't listen to us anymore. Listen to him and let's be retrained. But unfortunately, the more Jesus reached out, the more obstinate and stubborn they became in their pride and in their unbelief. And as sad as it is, as tragic as it is, as horrifying as it is, listen, this is important. According to our meek, gentle, and most compassionate king of kings, listen, leaders who refuse to humbly bow before King Jesus and those who follow follow their example will not come, will not find, rather, a happy ending. They will not come to a good end. And just to make that very, make something very abundantly clear, we need to see this. This is important as we go through that, this text. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law's issue was not simply that they had a sin problem. Listen, they had a sin problem. We all have a sin problem. No. The reason that Jesus uses the strong language that he uses in addressing them is that despite their sin and their great spiritual need because of it, they refused to receive the one and only one who could cure their disease. Their great sin of all sins was rejecting Emmanuel, God with us. 
Their great sin was turning away from the only hope and turning other people away who desperately were dying in their sins without Jesus. Jump with me to the end of this passage before we get into some of the strong language. You need to see this. So again, with the context. This is where, like I told you about the media, they would leave these verses out. They wouldn't want you to hear this part. Well, Matthew presents them faithfully for us. Look at verse 37. So what Jesus says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. You could hear the anguish in our Lord's voice as he expresses this lament over his old covenant people's refusal to come to him for forgiveness and for new life. So as we begin to look at this passage this morning, and we'll come back to it again after Christmas, let's keep this in mind. Jesus is both pronouncing judgment upon the religious leaders of his day in the hope that some would be awakened before it was too late. And he's also warning us of the consequences of following their example of stubborn unbelief. That's the way I want you to look at it this morning. God, Jesus is pronouncing judgment on their unbelief, and he's also warning us. So why preach this to us in this room? Because we have to be careful to make sure that we are not following their example. And I'll tell you what, it's easy to look at them. with They have the black hats, we have the white hats. It's easy to say to, to take pot shots at the Pharisees without looking in the mirror and saying, Lord, is it me? And that's what I hope you'll do this morning. I, I've been doing it all week. It's been beating me up good. And, and here's the one thing, I, I, I don't even have this in my notes, but I was thinking about this on the way here. I'm actually excited about this text. And I know when you hear those words, you think either our pastor is crazy or he better be able to explain himself. This is what I mean. To me, I don't know about you. I don't want to be found to be a play actor. Do you? I don't want to find in the end that Jesus to go, you phony. I'd rather have Jesus deal with me now and show me the areas in my life that, brother, you need to repent. You need to turn from that. You need to take off that mask. You need to face the ugly truth and come to me. I'd rather have, and for me, that, that is a means, of, it is a means of grace. And I hope you'll look at it that way this morning. Instead of looking at it as those evil people, and not only that, the other way we could look at this as we're hearing it, oh yeah, that guy's like a Pharisee in my life. Oh yeah, remember that preacher I heard? No. God will deal with them. This morning, let's take it to heart. One of my uh, long-distance preaching mentors, Dick Lucas, he's famous for what, what he calls uh, waggling on the tee in his sermons. That's a, that's a golfing illustration. In other words, you sit there and waggle and aim it. Before you actually hit the ball, you take a long time setting it up. And he said, here's the rule for preachers. If they don't get to their main point by 20 minutes, we, take it, we, we, we shut them down. And so I think I just barely got into that 20-minute uh, mark now to tell you what the main point of the text is. We're going to see this this morning. I think we're only going to look at two things, so we're all right. 
In this passage, we see that Jesus pronounces seven woes of judgment on Israel's hypocritical leaders and laments Israel's sad demise. I'm going to repeat that. Jesus pronounces seven woes of judgment on Israel's hypocritical leaders and laments Israel's sad demise. So I think we're going to lump the first two woes together. And I'm going to skip to the fourth woe, and that's the only two we're going to deal with this morning for time's sake. So let's look at the first thing. They refused to enter the kingdom of heaven. They prevented those who were trying to enter, and they reproduced in kind. That's what we're going to see. I'll unpack that for us. Look at verse 13. Jesus starts off the woes with this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. First thing we need to see is that Jesus refers to them as hypocrites. Now, in the Greek, it actually means play actor. It means actor, like actor on a stage. He's calling them phonies. He's calling them what we would say about musicians who dress like they're really cool hard rock guys and they go home and they're like nerds. We call them posers, right? They're not the real thing. Or, you know, sometimes I always think about actors, you know, I, I think about like, uh, I, I was just l- looking, uh, listening to a special on Rocky, the different Rocky movies, and, and when they were filming, they went back to Philly to film, and, and one lady walked up to him, and somebody was saying, and they're like, oh, it's good to see you back in the neighborhood. She was talking to him like he was Rocky, and he responded kind of like, yeah, it was good, good to be back, you know. But the point is, they were looking at him, they didn't realize, he's an actor. He listen, Sylvester Stallone can't box. You know how many times he had to go to the hospital because the real boxers in the, in, the, in the movies beat him up bad? How many times when we think of actors, though, we think of them as their character, we don't realize they're, they're not really that, right? And the point Jesus is saying here to them is, you're not really that. You are not spiritual leaders. You are not holy. You are not righteous. You hypocrites. You fakers. You phonies. Jesus is calling them out. You've got to understand, this is probably the most serious charge you could possibly bring against a spiritual leader, pastor, elder, priest, whatever. The thing is, he calls them hypocrites seven times, just in case they missed it the first six, I guess. Listen, the beauty about these words, though, as I mentioned earlier, and applying them to myself, is that Jesus, in doing so, in calling them out in this way, very frankly, Jesus is loving his neighbor. Remember, we looked at a few weeks back, we looked at Leviticus 19, where the command says, love your neighbor as yourself. And we read the verse before, command, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And it says this, rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in his guilt. That's loving. It's loving to call people in love on the carpet. And let me mention, normally you just do it gently. But as you could see, it took three years and they still weren't getting it. Right? This isn't a casual conversation of one little picadillo that happened. 
See, in refusing to acknowledge their sin and need for Jesus, and rejecting his person and his work and his teaching, and in attributing his miraculous work to the power of demons, right? They did that earlier in the gospel. They did not enter the kingdom. Here they were telling people that they were representatives of the kingdom, and they weren't getting in. Why? Because they didn't go through the door. What's the door? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the gate. He's the door. And notice Jesus uses strong language. He says, they shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. Now, interesting, when he talked to his apostles that he was calling, he talked about them having the keys to the kingdom, right? Well, these Pharisees were the old covenant leaders. They were supposed to be the doorkeepers, and they were shutting it on folk. They opposed Jesus and stopped people from coming to him. Certainly, they, they do this in other ways. As a matter of fact, we can see the description given for us in verses 13 and following, actually, or uh, 15 and following, excuse me, can actually be viewed as describing how they shut the door to the kingdom and prevented others from coming in. So, for instance, just a couple examples. Um, they nullified the word of God by, own, uh, by adding their own traditions to it. In other words, they, they, they had these special ways of getting out of oaths. Right? In the Old Testament, it says, take your oath in the Lord's name and that's it. Speaking about in judicial situations. And they say, well, you know, if, if, you only, uh, if you make your oath and you only swear by the temple, then you don't, you're not bound to keep it. But if you swear by the gift in the temple, oh, then you, you know. So in other words, it's one of these things. You ever see like when you were young, you say, cross my heart, hope to die. But then you got what behind your back? Your fingers crossed, right? And you think that lets you out of it. Oh, I got out. That's a loophole. Well, that's how silly these Pharisees were. And Jesus calls them on it. He says, are you kidding me? What's more important, the gift in the temple or the temple that makes the gift holy? So they added words through their hypocrisy. They do it by promoting mere external appearances in religion and neglecting inward purity and the weightier matters of the law. Right later on, Jesus is going to tell them, we'll deal with that next time, that outside they look good and clean and pretty, but inside they were filled with dead men's bones. They were rotten. They stunk to high heaven. And of course, by refusing to acknowledge the sin of their forefathers, and instead of instead saying, oh Lord, do not hold against us the sin of the fathers, forgive us, they tried to, to say, oh, oh, that we wouldn't have killed the prophets if we were back then like our fathers did. And they do what? Indict themselves because Jesus says, oh, so you're their children. We wonder why our Lord spoke so strongly to them. It's bad enough that they didn't enter the kingdom, but they added insult to injury by preventing others from entering. Sad, tragic irony was that they were not only failing in their main calling, which was, which was supposed to help people enter the kingdom, but they were all too successful in doing just the opposite, shutting them out. Listen, that's why the Bible in many places, including here, 
makes it very clear that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Listen, back then there were millions of people. Today there are billions and billions of people dying without a knowledge of Jesus. The world needs the church. We're supposed to go out and present the gospel and and make disciples. Now, can you imagine we turn around and not only do we not do that, but we go and and, and we're supposed to be representing Jesus. We don't only not bring them true religion, but we bring them bad religion. Do you understand that? We bring them poison instead of the pure good news of the gospel that can save their souls. I don't know about you, but if I sent my people in the world to bring love and peace and joy and reconciliation, all the things we prayed for, and they turn around and we're part of the problem, I would not be happy. And Jesus was not happy. Someone has said the greatest of all faults is to be conscious of none. Well, I want to amend it a bit. I would say something a little different. I would say the greatest of all faults is in the face of clear evidence to acknowledge none. Do you understand the difference? The difference is Jesus pointed out again and again where they fell short and they knew he caught them with their hands in the cookie jar. And instead of saying, and by the way, I hate to say, my bad, even that's bad, but they wouldn't even do that. They still tried to maintain their self-righteousness. Sadly, there was one other thing they did in this text that we see to keep people from entering. And look at verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as you are. Woo. Ouch. That's tough, isn't it? I can't help but think of the story. I remember this one by heart. It came to me when I was just studying. I didn't look it up or anything. Charles Spurgeon tells a story, a great Baptist preacher. He says, one day he was walking on the streets of London and his drunk came up to him and slurring his word, all wasted. And he says, hey, Spurgeon, I'm one of your disciples. And Jesus, uh, not Jesus, sorry, Spurgeon looked at him and said, I'm afraid, my friend, you are. How I wish you would have become one of Jesus' disciples. If that's true of a godly man who is preaching the good news, imagine how true it is of someone who's rejected Jesus and making his own disciples. How much more are they going to be twice the son of hell than, than they are? What Spurgeon said tongue in cheek was actually true of the Pharisees' converts, right? They out Phariseed the Pharisees. <laughs> Sad contrast, Trask, before I go to the second thing and last thing for this morning. You remember at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he gives us, I believe it's nine beatitudes. Remember that? Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he says, you know, for theirs is the kingdom, for they will be called sons of God, all that's beautiful. And then here toward the end of his ministry, he gives us what? Seven woes. And the contrast couldn't be any more stark. Notice here, those who are poor in spirit, aware of their need, that is, 
open to receiving from Jesus what they need. They what? It says theirs is the kingdom. Isn't that awesome? They're poor spiritual beggars. And Jesus says, you know what? Theirs is the kingdom. In contrast, these converts of the Pharisees, they're self-righteous, they're prideful, they're unwilling to admit their need and to come to Jesus as beggars for what only he can give. And what are they called? Sons of hell. And it's in the genitive there, means they belong there. Means that's their home country. Jesus is saying they're not mine. You didn't win them to my cause. You didn't win them to the kingdom. All your self-righteousness and your little legalistic rules and your outward pomp and circumstance and inward, your devil. You made them worse than you. Second thing and last thing we deal with today. They majored in the minors and minored in the majors. Brace yourself for this one. 23 and 24. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Stick with me here. Tell you a story. A man was asked to speak to a large church. And he came up to a pulpit. And he said, there are three points to my sermon. Most people yawn. Some of you like now are sleeping. Most people yawn at that point. Because they had heard that many times before, right? When people, preachers come up, I got three points. Right? People right away. But he went on. He said, my first point is, at this time, there are approximately 2 billion people starving to death in the world. The reaction through the congregation was about the same, since they heard that sort of st- statement many times before, too. But then he said, my second point, everybody sat up. They said, only 10 or 15 seconds? And he's already on his second point. He paused, and then he said, my second point is that most of you don't give a damn. He paused again as gasps and rumblings flowed across the congregation. And then he said, and my third point is that the real tragedy among Christians today is that many of you are now more concerned that I said the word damn than you are that I said that two billion people are starving to death. And then he sat down. Perhaps this is the one woe as evangelical Christians we need to watch out for the most, isn't it? Let me say this. Jesus has not given us excuse to be lax on any of God's requirements. He says you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So he's, saying, he's not saying don't bother tithing. He's saying you should have taken care of the more important stuff and also taken care of the other things next. You should have been more concerned about the weightier matters of the law like justice, mercy, and faithfulness instead of like, I like the way Randy puts it um, when he talks about the spices. Imagine tithing on your spices, one bay leaf, two bay leaf. You know, like, really? Oh, my goodness. The 
point Jesus is making is where do we put our focus? See, the illustration Jesus gives us is meant to be somewhat tongue-in-cheek humorous, and it would be really funny if it wasn't so tragic, wouldn't it? Think about this whole idea. Here they are tithing of their spices, and yet they're devouring widows' homes. Instead of caring for widows in their need, they're getting in, ingratiating themselves to them, and then taking their houses. You want to talk about swallowing a camel whole. Congratulations, you got the stinking gnat out of your drink. But the hooves are hanging out of your mouth. See, the problem is this. You can go to church, you can put money in the plate, you can put all kinds of effort into making the service just right, make sure it starts on time, ends on time. Well, we don't have that problem. <laughs> have a sermon with three points, a poem, and tack on some application. But if you don't care for widows and orphans in their distress, if you don't seek and to, to, say, to bring the gospel to the lost, if you treat people that you work with with common courtesy and respect, but when you come home you treat your wife or your, hu- your husband or your children like garbage, then your religion is worthless and you're a hypocrite. You're a blind guy called neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. And I think we could take heed to that and take it seriously. And I think we could try by the grace of God and with his help to keep the camels out of the church here. Gnats we could deal with. You know, summers we even deal with those fruit fly things, but let's keep the camels out. Well, to pick up the rest of this text after Christmas season, but I'm going to end with a couple observations and we'll close in prayer. The first I want to end with is this, so you don't miss it. It has to do with hypocrisy. There is a difference between hypocrisy and general sinfulness. Listen, the church is filled with sinners. Amen? I want to tell you, I come to church because I am a sinner. I don't come to church to, to brag and, and to be prideful and to say, look at me, I'm a Christian. I come because say, I'm messed up. I'm hurting, Lord. I know what I want to be. I know what I need to be, but I ain't that yet. So God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Fill me with your grace. Strengthen me. Help me. Show your kindness to this poor man and make me the man I need to be. By your grace, through your finished work. We all need Jesus. We all fail in everything. (laughs) In everything. You know that? (laughs) Thankfully, and I want to add this, thankfully, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Can I get an amen? amen? The Lord's prayer is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So when people say, I don't want to go to church, it's all messed up, it's sinful. We, we never said anything different. As a matter of fact, we said our whole religion is based on the forgiveness of sins. But there's a big difference between that and being a complete phony. Using religion as a cover, cover up for a heart and a life that's filled with pride and self-righteousness and hatred and greed. And the main important thing, rebellion against God. Do you know that? You could look pretty, you could look like the best servant in the world and you could be totally in rebellion against God. 
Pharisees, they were kind of, I mean, they looked like good people. They were conservative. They held to the word, Old Testament. But they rejected the one to whom the word pointed. Listen, if you claim the name of Christ, I hope you were convicted like I was going through the passage. That's a good thing. Because listen, this is what, remember I told you before, it's a happy thing to me. I'll tell you why it's happy. Listen to me. This is important as I come to a close. Because it drove me to my knees. And it pushed me to Jesus. Isn't that where we're supposed to be anyway? Not in denial. Not trying to cover it up. Not trying, oh, well, what's for dinner? But saying, hey, it was me. I see myself too much here. Forgive me, restore me, heal me, transform me that I might do justly, that I might love mercy, that I might walk humbly with you through faith in Christ. If you're unsure about your relationship with Christ, hear these words of John Bunyan. He that forgets his friend is ungrateful to him. But he that forgets the Savior is unmerciful to himself. Isn't that powerful? You know, he who rejects a friend is unmerciful to that friend. But I'll tell you, you reject Jesus, you're unmerciful to yourself. Because the only game in town you just denied yourself. Amen. No. But listen, if Jesus longed to gather a disobedient, stiff-necked people under his wings like a mother hen does with her chicks, then certainly this morning he stands with open arms to anybody here, even blatant hypocrites, and he says, I long for you to come and receive from me forgiveness, new life. Come to me that I might make you genuine that I can not only justify you, but sanctify you and every day make you more and more holy, more and more like me. You know, I I opened up this sermon, Lord, break our hearts so you can remake them again in your image. There's no reason you can't mean that and come to Jesus right now. Don't wait for some time that seems appropriate to you because guess what? Appropriate times never come. If the Lord's tugging on your heart now, answer him now while he's at the door. That's my prayer for you. I'm going to give a couple moments for you to pray just to, to the Lord by yourself. Then I'm going to close us in prayer. And then we're going to sup together um, at the Lord's table. So let's pray. This is your opportunity, if you're not right, to get right with Jesus. And then I'll pray. Let's pray together. Father, forgive me 
Forgive us for neglecting the weightier matters of your law. For not loving and watching out for and caring for widows. Because maybe they don't fit our criteria. They're not in this city or they're not here or they're not related to that person. When you clearly, when we clearly had an opportunity, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for not caring for the children who either don't have parents or have parents that are neglectful and they so desperately need a guiding hand, a, a, a smiling face, a caring touch. Forgive us for not being kind to one another, especially not kind to those of our own household, and yet showing a good face to the world. Forgive us for our own hypocrisy, Lord, as we mourn for the hypocrisy we see in leaders who are called by your name and who are blatant hypocrites. Lord Jesus, as we worship you and we celebrate your coming this season, we worship you as you are, Lord, not as we want you to be or think you to be. Forgive our small thoughts of you. Forgive our wicked thoughts of you that we sometimes think you're like us. But we thank you that you're not. You're holy. You're good. You're righteous. You're faithful. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you long to gather us. You long for this neighborhood even to come to know you, to repent of their sins, to turn from their wickedness. God, have mercy on us. Work in our hearts even this morning that we might be used to work in the hearts of others, that your your words will be spoken through us humbly because we're broken over our inconsistencies. Magnify yourself, Jesus. Please do that. And as we are awed by your first coming, may we remember who you are. You are not a safe lion, but you are good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we prepare for communion, could someone do me a favor and grab me a napkin or a tissue or something? Thanks, buddy. It's going to be out of this room probably. I think you have to go in the kitchen. Thanks so much, Jason. First thing we need to do before we partake of communion, especially after a message like that, is confess our sins. Let's do that together uh, with these words found in Psalm 25. It gives us, it guides us in a good way to confess. Let's do it together as a prayer. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Look upon my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how my enemies have increased and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Thanks, brother. May integrity and uprightness Redeem Israel, O God, from all their troubles. Notice it's a perspective of those being persecuted. Isn't that interesting? 
Jesus said, Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Men say all manner of evil against you because of my name. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And it reminds us, though we are persecuted in this country, we're certainly not as persecuted as our brothers and sisters who are literally um, physically dying for their faith. So as we confess our sins, let's also, um, as we just did, let's also pray. Keep them in prayer. Amen. Here's the words of absolution that God gives us when we come to him humbly in Jesus' name. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Amen.